Welcome to Yes, We Do Adopt, a podcast dedicated to the experiences, challenges, and triumphs of adoptive families headed by people of color. My name is Malika Parker, and I am a Black mama who is parenting through adoption and birth. I also work as the director of the Adoptive Parents of Color Collaborative, a project of PACT and Adoption Alliance. PACT is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to serve adopted children of color. In every case, the child is always our primary client. In order to best serve children's needs, we provide not only adoptive placement services, but also lifelong education, support, and community for adoptees and their families on issues of adoption, identity, and race. The Adoptive Parents of Color Collaborative is working to elevate the voices of people of color who are parenting through adoption and foster care. Yes, We Do Adopt is one of the ways we hope to share our stories. Our second season was recorded in the midst of a global pandemic, COVID-19, racial uprisings as a result of state-sanctioned violence. Here in California, we are dealing with wildfire season, and we are all anxiously awaiting an election that is sure to have deep, deep impacts on the trajectory of the future for this country. So this season, we decided to center the voices and experiences of Black folks. This episode, I have the immense pleasure of welcoming Sean Sparks. Sean is a therapist, a program coordinator with the Children's Bureau, and a staunch advocate for the health and well-being of children, especially those who join their family through adoption and foster care. In this conversation, Sean and I reflect on the impact of the pandemic on families, the global racial reckoning that we're in the middle of, the movement to defund the police, and the disparity of resource allocation for families. Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm so good. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for inviting. So I wanted to just start with you telling me and telling the audience about the work that you're doing in the world. I am an MFT, so I've been working as a therapist for probably 13 years, and I specialize in adoption. I work with a lot of transracially adopted families um, and caregivers. I also supervise three um, county contracts to provide support to adoptive families who, whose families were, came together through LA County. And the third program provides support to relative caregivers who are caring for relative children who can't be raised by their birth parents. That's super important work. I'm so excited that you're doing it because I know the politic and the care that you go into this work in this world with. In thinking about the work that you're doing right now and kind of the state of the world, how are those things kind of intermingling in your work life? Yeah, I think, so with COVID, I think like with everybody, like we just had to really make very quick adjustments, especially because, you know, we are a primary, you know, support for many of these families, right? So we do lots of advocacy. We do a lot of psychoeducation around adoption and how, attachment disruption impacts child development and family dynamics. So to lose connection with those families during COVID mm. would have been really detrimental potentially, right? So we know that there's many less child abuse reports coming into LA County's hotline because teachers are a primary reporting source, right? And so mm. teachers don't have contact with kids. And we know that issues around addiction and domestic violence are, are on the rise during COVID. So for us, it was about how do we make the quickest adjustment to maintain connection with families to ensure that they actually, they know that they can reach out, they need support. Mm -hmm. And that was no small task. And so really kind of drove the work. 
for probably about a month and a half was really around adjustment. So COVID really impacted us in that way around programming and delivering services. Mm -hmm. But what I'm noticing around clients is this, that COVID has necessitated all of us to slow down, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so what we're seeing is increase in engagement from clients and services, which is great. Our support groups uh -huh. have very high numbers, but we're also seeing that relationships are, are healing. And we're seeing kids attaching to their caregivers hmm. because they're in close proximity. And I think part of what's happened is that when we're forced to slow down, we are forced to feel. Yeah. We can't keep ourselves distracted from how we're feeling. And I think what COVID raised was a lot of feelings around grief. The grief of what the world was, and then this anticipatory grief about what, what are we going to be walking into mm -hmm. um, if there's ever a post-COVID. So those things, those things have really been kind of at the surface around the work with COVID and then the movement, right? The movement yeah. broke open. Yeah, it broke all the way open. All the way open, right? <laughs> so the movement broke open and I was bombarded with emails and texts and phone calls from all these people who wanted to know if I was okay. Mm -hmm. And I was completely perplexed about why they were asking if I was okay because I was better than I had ever been in my life. I am safer than I have ever been in my life and more affirmed as a black yeah. person than I've ever been in my life. Yeah. So I think the movement really drove me to think about where I work mm -hmm. and how we need to align ourselves, right? We should have a long time ago. Yeah. Wondering if this will give us the power and the, the commitment, but also the courage to really do the work we need to do. And so for me, that's around policy, how we're delivering services, and how in child welfare are we actually supporting disproportionality and a system of white supremacy that really disenfranchises birth parents, which right. is why our child welfare system has so many kids and disproportionately are black. Yeah. So I hope that answered your question. It's just, it's yeah. so weird. There's so much. Yeah. So this is not one of the things I told you I was going to ask you about. Uh -oh. <laughs> but you. you you have taken me down this road. So that's uh -oh. all So one... <laughs> One of, with kind of the movement to defund the police that's happening right now, one of the calls is for like increased support of social services. And some folks are, ha are holding a critique of that, right? And because they're with the analysis that there needs to be some readjustment in the way that social services work and support of Black folks. And I feel like you kind of, just hit on that, right? The way that families are separated across the board in this society definitely plays into white supremacy and our ideals about who's fit to parent and who's not. How do you, like, what are your thoughts on that? On the kind of juxtaposition of policing and social services and how to like create systems of, act of safety and, and care for families? Yeah. So I've read, I mean, I've read, you know, lots of ideas and plans. And I, you know, to be honest, I think that it is, it's a faulty plan to shift responsibility to DCFS, right? To, so, to child welfare, because it's a broken system. It's, to me, it's built on exactly the same structure that law enforcement is, mm -hmm. um, which comes from, you know, historical white supremacy in our institutions. So I think for me, it's around, I think we do need to kind of supply social workers with more support. Um, and more kind of resource that they can provide to folks, you know, when there's a need. 
But I, I honestly, I think the same thing has to happen with child welfare. I think that it needs to be dismantled and built back. And I think, I think that one of the things that could be highly successful, which we've seen like in small demonstration projects, is to break down the department mm. into smaller service areas and create community, you know, based on schools, right? So we would put social workers and counselors, whoever, at school sites to mm. one, make it more accessible, right? But also to me, that really would help shift the culture. So I don't think that that's a good answer because I think that that system is as broken. Yeah. I think that our work needs to be around prevention, which, which means for me around working around resilience with black families and mm -hmm. fortifying their resources and stabilizing families and providing them with the tools to, to, for me, a big part of the mental health part is to help them identify that in fact, racism is a chronic, right? A chronic impact on their lives and the lives of their families that absolutely has uh, impact on every level. I think yeah. that, that black people deserve to like have that language and understand that on a much deeper level. I think we start there. And I think we've got to engage black communities to help, the, to help us figure out how to meet the needs of black communities. I don't think that, that organizations and institutions can make those decisions you know, insulated. I think that folks have to be brought in from the outside to change systems. We cannot change systems that we're a part of in those yeah. ways. Yeah. So that's, there's, a, there's a few reasons that I think it's, it's faulty. I do want to say that I think the work social workers do is highly important work. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't fault social workers. It's the system that's set up for families of color to fail. Yeah. You know? So I think I'm just as culpable in my position, right? Because I'm participating in working in a broken system. Yeah. And I think one of the things that feels, for me, that feels hopeful is that we don't actually have to limit ourselves by like one thing, right? So I think you can defund policing and you can create structures that really support families. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Sure. And in some ways that feels more hopeful right now than I think it ever has, for me it's at least. Possible, right? I mean, it feels right. more possible that there's, there doesn't have to be an either or. Right. There could be something that we create, right? That, that really meets the needs of people from an emotional place, but also from a place of connection. Yeah. I think that that's what, what's missing from both institutions. There's no real opportunity for connection. Right. And so if we're charged with healing people and we believe the research that that's where the healing happens, then why are those of us in the helping profession not provided the tools to really help connect? And right. to me, connecting means we really see and hear who people are and we really invite the realities of their lives into the conversation, not our, our beliefs about who they are. Yeah. Right. So I, I just, I think that there needs to be a cultural shift in the way that we look at holistic care. So one of the things that I'm thinking about as you're talking, and one of the things that has been on my mind for the last few years is as an adoptive parent, as a black woman who is an adoptive parent, I have received so much support. And it's not just me. Adoptive parents get a lot of support. There could always be more. It could always be better, you know, like all of the things. I actually get to sit in spaces and think about parenting on a regular basis, right? And if I weren't an adoptive parent, I don't know, I don't think, I'm pretty clear <laughs> that I wouldn't get the same level of support. Yeah. And, and I definitely wouldn't feel like it was mine to take, right? A lot of the messaging around support for families is 
well, you do this, we need to teach you how to do something differently. Come to a cooking class because the way that you cook is wrong. Come you to know, a, you can't afford the food. Right. To cook let, different. Us, let, let us introduce you to vegetables because you right. don't know what they are, right? right? No, no, you have no clue. Right, you have no idea. So we're going to teach you how to make a salad. Come to a class on discipline because we don't want you hitting on your kids. And I often wonder what would it be like if there were spaces provided for families of color in a real way that really affirmed them as parents. You know, I have received so much affirmation as a parent. I often walk into situations like, I got this. I got, right? Like, even if I don't, I have like this air of confidence about me because I know that I have community. I know that I have support. I know that my intentions by society are trusted as relatively good, especially if I'm just supposing like parenting by birth, parenting through adoption, people assume goodness in me. If they think that I'm a black mom who gave birth to all of my children, they do not assume goodness, right? Yeah, so I'm just kind of thinking about and hearing what you were talking about, thinking about what would that space look like? How can families really receive that wrap around, we got you kind of experience? And what would that do to the rates of placements and removals in our society? Yeah. I think, so this is something that I've been in conversations with, with other colleagues for, for a while, a couple of years around creating some type of like holistic kind of mental health support. And so we did, we, you know, the idea is to really create some groups, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly what you're talking about to kind of normalize, like, nah, y'all not bad parents. Yeah. Like, this group just doesn't parent in the same way. And because they, they set the standard in America, right? So to, to one, really affirm, but also to help them build kind of social connections, right? Because mm-hmm. we know, like, in terms of protective factors, like social connections and information really help fortify resilience. And then the other piece of it would be around, you know, support around working through race, mm-hmm. working through how race visits itself on us. There's a really beautiful therapeutic modality that's based on the work of Paulo Freire called the Psychotherapy of Liberation. Mm-hmm. And it's this four-stage model that really helps walk clients through kind of in a narrative form, kind of how racism impacts or how whatever ism impacts in the fourth stage is activism, right? As a form of healing. And so I really think that we need to provide people with opportunities to be affirmed and process and explore their feelings. But I think that talk therapy has really, really serious limitations. Mm -hmm. I think we've got to figure out some other strategies that are more in alignment with like who people really are like, who black people are, right? And so it needs to really incorporate all the things that we turn to for support while also introducing some new things that may be helpful, but not from a deficit view, right? Not like there's something wrong with you, but like, here's all these these things. Are there any of these things that maybe fit with you? And this is why it could be valuable. Yeah. So, but I think the social connection, right? In that, in that environment where everybody's there talking about parenting could be really beautiful. And I think for birth parents who are, Um, in danger of having children detained or have had kids detained, I think to put folks together, Mm -hmm. I think what I've seen is that it really helps remove the shame. Yeah. And I think that that works against people so deeply, like Mm -hmm. to their detriment. I think it's the reason why many birth parents never reunify is because they get so caught up in shame. And a lot of that shame is the messages that we all participate in, right? Yeah. So I, abs- I think that that's a, a, a really beautiful way that I think that we do need to like look at how do we make that happen. I mean, when we were talking about it, there were like, where are we going to get funding for something like that? 
Yeah. And we were all willing to volunteer time, but I think that adds a barrier. And I think this movement, this moment mm -hmm. part of it is that people are dying for ways to like do the right thing and participate. Yeah. Right. So I'd love to hear that folks are thinking about, you know, providing support for things like this to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I was part of a group that facilitated like kind of an impromptu call for, for black folks who are parenting and there were like 50 parents who showed up. That is incredible. <laughs> like I was watching, you know, the, it was a, on a zoom meeting. So I was watching the participant number go up and I was like, well, what? <laughs> and it was just an amazing space. How are you feeling? What is coming up for you in this moment and thinking about the uprisings that are happening, this response to policing in this country, the response to like folks being in the street. And we were checking in briefly about kind of this uptick and concern <laughs> for the for the well-being of the black folks. And although we've been experiencing this oppression for a long time. Yeah, this is not new. It's so. not new. It's I continue to be shocked by how it continues to be framed as this new thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I'm like, ugh. I mean, in general, I am so inspired and excited and energized by this movement. I think for me, it's really, really amazing to see how strategic the planning is. Mm -hmm. When I see these little, you know, small white women with blonde hair getting pummeled by the police at the front of the protest line, those things are absolutely strategic and planned. Yeah. Um, and I, so I'm just so encouraged by the evolution of this movement and how much time and effort they put into planning. Um, I'm so encouraged by how many people are pouring into the streets consistently. Yeah. The fact that people can imagine a world with, you know, less or no law enforcement is something that I never thought would be possible. Yeah. Um, so I'm just, I'm deeply encouraged and just, I mean, it is such an important time. It's a, it's some, I mean, I, I can't even find the words to express like the, the impact. I think that there are definitely levels and layers to the emotional experience of it. So I just, I think as a black person, it's obviously bringing up lots of stuff, but I feel very affirmed in this moment. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think that, that the way that I conceptualize it is like really like systems are changing physiology has the the capacity to really change and shift by these new experiences right and so i'm really curious about how as individuals but also collectively how we're shifting mm -hmm. right how this affirmation how this open dialogue conversation how this validation even though i don't feel like i've ever needed it mm -hmm. but how we're getting this collective validation that like we are not valued yeah. I'm super curious about how that's shifting us collectively. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think I'm experiencing it daily, like on the personal level and then like collectively as a black person and then in my interactions with others. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the interactions with others that have been the most difficult. So like all these people reaching out to me who are not black asking if I'm okay. And actually I feel the most safe I've ever felt or you know, spaces being created to talk about it and white people talking first and talking about their fear of the, the looting and the rioting and no dialogue about the movement. Yeah. And that this was an impossibility. 
Yeah. Like literally we're watching something that was in pop. This is so deeply ingrained in who we are. Yeah. As an American society, this is our fabric. Yeah. And the potential is that it is cracked open, right? And corrected in a way that can possibly create some repair mm-hmm. for us, but also for our, you know, interactions with other folks. Yeah. So I just, I think there's so many layers to it. And I think I'm just scraping the surface about how many layers it touches. Yeah. But I definitely feel it like my entire physiology and spirit and mind, I feel like it like washes over all of me. Mm-hmm. I, just, I think it's such an incredible time. So when we were talking earlier, you talked about like the possibility of it shifting our DNA. I'm so curious about that. That, like the idea of that is amazing. Like that hadn't even occurred to me. For my children to spend time in a moment where, you know, like they made, <laughs> they made signs that say white supremacy has got to go, which three weeks ago would be like, what? Right, normal conversation in our house, not necessarily the conversation that's happening out on the streets, on a, you know, like with average Joe on the street. Uh, Right, and now there's actual conversations about it and what that does for their spirits and then what that does for what they can hand down to their children should they become parents, right? Yeah. I'm just so curious about it. I'm not a researcher. I know about science as it relates to trauma. And I know that trauma changes the neural pathways in our brain, right? But also what we know through brain research is that about 100 repetitions of a new behavior can create a new neural pathway. Mm -hmm. When I take my very basic understanding of brain physiology and connect that to trauma, I really wonder because, you know, obviously all the oppression that our ancestors experienced has been passed down through DNA. And that's true for all people. Yeah. So I'm super curious about all of us who are experiencing this collectively at the same time and whatever the ongoing vibrations of that are, if that has actually capacity to shift us a little bit, like heal a little bit yeah. of that generational trauma. So it's just something that I'm super curious about. And I think with COVID, I'm really curious about the correction to some attachment challenge challenges between parents and kids right now mm-hmm. because there's so much time together. I, I'm glad that you bought the COVID, the connection conversation back. I wanted to spend a, a little bit of time on that. I'm so curious about like in a year, do folks go back to normal? Do, you know, like, what does that look like? They've now had this resetting. How does capitalism, I mean, I know that it will figure out a way, but like, like, how does that reset itself? Right. Do you, have you, you're a pretty deep thinker. Do you have thoughts? You know, I, it's interesting because with Corona, what I've learned my own emotional process is it slowed me down to stillness. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm really trying to lean into that and remain committed. So I actually am really purposefully not trying to think about what could be. Uh-huh. Because for me, the value is about what's happening now. Yeah. Um, and it creates a lot of angst because I think about like just in terms of like the benefits to the environment. Mm -hmm. as we start to go back those things start to get chipped away yeah so I guess my the way that I frame it for myself is my hope is that people are going to step away from this with a deeper understanding of the value of being slow but also family time having conversations right I I I talk to lots of folks who feel so much less stressed without the drive Mm -hmm. so I think for me it's around 
what I hope to, to keep with me, because I actually feel like Corona, I feel like there's a lot of blessings about Corona. Mm -hmm. I think that it did things that we needed done that we were unable to do. And so, you know, I, I often talk about like, I think that God or the universe sometimes whispers to us and then tap on the shoulder. And then eventually like, it's a swift kick in the butt. <laughs> and I honestly, I think that we were at a breaking point. And so I think that um, my hope is just that we find the value in stillness and bring that with us into whatever the new world looks like. I also think, what I do think is that we are all going to be experiencing an ongoing kind of process of grief. Mm -hmm. Because our safety, right, our fundamental safety has been rocked in a way it never has before. Yeah. And so again, like the potential of that to really shift our systems, I think many of us are fun functioning in a kind of a reactive state, right, of having chronic trauma. This is very, depending on how you experience it in your system, this is very traumatic for lots of people. Yeah. I also just want to say, like, I also have a very privileged, like, experience in COVID. Like, I can, I can stay home and work from home and, and I can keep social distance and I have my own room, mm -hmm. you know? And so many of the families that I serve are undocumented folks, work under the table, like, and don't have space to physically distance, like didn't even have access to masks or a way to make masks, right? So I also recognize like I sit in a very privileged position to have to deal with COVID. So yeah. I typically am actually really grateful, like when I reflect about how COVID's impacted me. Yeah. Um, but I do, I just wanna say that I think that when we started to talk about moving back into the world, to me, the timing of the movement like, I just really believe in the intention of the universe. I don't think any of this is by accident. Yeah. I think that COVID also led into this resurgence of the movement. And then we started to move back into the world from COVID. And the movement was like, uh-uh. And we lost, we lost, you know, I mean, we lost three people in very close proximity, right? Yeah. And, and I just, I think about Mr. Floyd's murder and him calling for his mom. And I think about stillness. Yeah. Think about the stillness we're forced to be in to, to watch that. And, and I wonder about how those two things work together with a greater divine purpose. And, and that's, that's where my faith comes in. And I think that's partially what keeps me so motivated and inspired. Yeah. Um, is that I really, really believe these things were absolutely intentional and needed to happen for, for the greater good. So another, another piece yeah, that I think that I think is interesting is the space that for some of us, not all of us, like you mentioned, the space that we have in this moment to really fully experience the grief of all of the things we've been holding and to, yeah, like to be still with that. There's not all of the noise that normally exists. And, and so it's hard. <laughs> This is a hard moment, but I think what's hard about it is space to be like, no, this is not normal. This is not okay. Right. And the fact that it feels normal is yes. like, that's urgent. Yeah. There's a really cool article that I read. I can't remember the guy's name, but he worked with uh, Kubler-Ross Kubler who wrote the, the stages of grief and they actually added additional stage and it's meaning making. Mm. And they talk about it in reference to COVID. And they talk about like, and it's the same as like the psychotherapy of liberation, right? It's so interesting that meaning making is where that healing really happens. Mm -hmm. right? So same thing with any type of trauma work, 
right? The whole goal is to, to tell a cohesive narrative so that you make sense of what happened, yeah. right? And so, and it causes integration, which helps healing. And so I think that in my own experience, my therapist is well-paid. So I've been processing stuff <laughs> of my therapist because it's, it makes me feel crazy sometimes. And then I talk to other people. I'm like, oh, you're experiencing the same thing. There's just no existing roadmap. There is no point of reference to go back to and be like, oh, this is how we handled it last time. Or this is what happened. Yeah. This is new. Yeah. Uh, and so I think the stillness for me when I'm able to tolerate it, it's difficult to tolerate, which is why I think we see lots of people going back to like old coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. People often call regression. I don't think it's regression. I feel like we're reaching back. Like if I still need that, is it there? Yeah. And I don't actually think there's anything wrong with that. But I, I think that when I'm able to tolerate the stillness, I feel real authentic emotions about racism, mm -hmm. right? And about what's happening, like, so past kind of the landscape of America and being black in America and then kind of what's happening now. Yeah. Right? It's, but I think, like I said, there's no roadmap. So sometimes I can't even identify or name that feeling. I can just feel it. Yeah. I don't, know if, I don't know if you can relate to that. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Like my jaw, like I get lumps in my throat sometimes. I'm like, I think maybe there might be some tears, but I'm not. <laughs> like my, my system is figuring out like, where do we put these, all these new emotions? Yeah. It's a very surreal experience sometimes. I feel like we all had to hit the ground running, especially like supporting families. And so there's like adrenaline and like you're working and you're creating, you're figuring out how to shift systems and deliver services virtually. And keep your staff safe. And so it was like this, this responsibility to like my, my team and my agency and our clients. Yeah. And then last week I started to just feel really tired and like achy. So yeah. I've been sick. Like I got the COVID like, right. Right? <laughs> cause that's always now like you go through your checklist. Right. Yeah. And then I was like, no, I'm just tired. And then I was like, why am I tired? Yeah. And so like, I think you've mentioned that or like the fact that I'm even like, why am I tired? Right. It should kind of more be like, of course you're tired. Yeah. Right. And so then I started having conversations with other people and I noticed that collectively black folks that I spoke to were all feeling exhausted. Yeah. You know? And so that's kind of hung on. And I think like, we've also got to look at like, we're living in a chronic situation and chronic situations like this that create more stress visits itself on our bodies mm -hmm. in very significant ways. Yeah. But like, I can't go do hot yoga. So like I lost one of my main coping strategies, right? Yes. So it's like, yes. what, is, what is my system doing right now? Like it, there's a buildup of toxicity. I can feel it because yeah. I know what it feels like when I'm constantly working it out. So, and that's something that I was like, oh yeah, yoga's not the same doing it online. Like I'll walk or do a work, but it's not the same. So I think there's those things too. Yeah. And it's interesting because not until it comes up and I pay attention to it, do I have to shift my thinking to be like, well, of course you're tired. Like, right. did you forget about the Rona? Right. Like, black people are being murdered and right. you're watching this? Right. So I have, I have a, a teenager in my house. One of the things that's, that I honestly really love about this moment is how much time I'm getting with my teenager and the stillness that they are getting in this moment that's like disconnected it's hard for, for the teenagers, it's hard because they're disconnected. But I think that like this connection is actually provides some space for like heal, like you were talking about healing and connection. Oh. Yeah. Without the distraction of their friends? When will we ever get time like this?
No, right. I very early on, I said to someone, you know, I have a young adult who is three years away from being a full out adult. Never will I have time ever. Leisurely baking, going on strolls. Legos. I should show you what we're building. Oh, that's so we're, good. That's no, but, like it's honestly like as a clinician, I always talk to parents about play because it's yeah. like the eat for most parents. It's the easiest way to engage and build connection. Yeah. Like we have been able to play. He's so relaxed. He misses his friends and, yeah. and I'm going to be devastated if he can't go back. Like I'm going to make that decision. He go back to school just because the social interaction is so deeply important for him. I know all parents have to make their own decision around their kid, but it's interesting because he's been here watching me work. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think this might be a little off topic. I want to say as a, as a parent, it has felt so deeply validating for him to be like, wow, you do work a lot. Because I've always questioned as a dad, like, does he think I'm just full of it? Yeah. And does he believe that I'm really working this much? Yeah. And so like him bearing witness is from a very, very selfish place has been healing for me around some of my guilt. Yeah. Because I, it's, I'm sure you can relate. It's such a difficult choice. Yeah. Like you're choosing between your kid and your work. Yeah. Uh, and I can ne- I've never been able to find resolution that's like relieved me of that guilt. And so this was super important. And then he started asking me questions about the work. Yeah. And as a 16 year old, like he's very thoughtful and he's like deeply, you know, deeply, you know, thinks critically about things. But I just feel like it's allowed the time for him to ease into conversations versus picking him up from school. And it's like a rushed conversation. Then we got to rush to get dinner. He just moseys on in, right? Maybe the news is on. And so we have a conversation about race. Or like, he's shown me this terrible show called Big Mouth, which is actually brilliant. It's a cartoon that's about teenagers and their, and puberty. And so they have like avatars, which are their hormones, which are basically speaking to the hormones. And then it's like the kid wrestling with them. But like he introduced me to the show and it shows a woman, master, a kid masturbating and another kid figuring out about, you know, I don't even remember the other stuff. But it's done very well. And so it created this whole conversation around sex health, but also domestic violence. Uh-huh. Right? And so, like, it was this whole conversation about, like, what do you think guys need, right, to, like, manage their emotions so it's not coming out? And so without this time for him to ease into conversation, yeah. without me pushing it, yeah. I can, we've talked about balancing budgets. Yeah. About earning interest. It's, and he's asking these questions. Yep. So I just, I think it's this beautiful time. Granted, when I think about the families that I serve though, yeah, great for kids and their foster parents, but birth parents have lost out on, on family time. They've lost out on their, and those are their legal rights to their times with their kids. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's great. Like kids are getting stabilized, but also like, what does that do to their relationship with birth families? So it's like, it's like my situation is very privileged in that way. And then I, it's always interrelated connected to black folks and then to like clients yeah 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 it's it's been it's it's such a blessing yeah it just it's just been beautiful like and he gets up and like does dishes and like washes the toilet without me asking it's interesting because the absence of kind of the narrative of who teenagers are in particular my experience has been that it frees up space to be whoever you are you know what I mean? Like it frees up like 
I don't have to put on this particular persona. I don't have to navigate schools. I don't have to hold loss and trauma and like anxieties around separation for some kids, right? For some young people who are in school, for, for other young people, it's having the opposite effect, I think right now. But it's, it's just this interesting moment that's kind of filled with like all of this hope, all of this possibility and fear and despair and uncertainty, right? So my beautiful segue, <laughs> I, I want to ask you what you're feeling hopeful about. Like what is feeling really inspiring to your soul in this moment? I feel so deeply hopeful about the movement. Like so deeply hopeful. I feel inspired by seeing my, my parents, my mom's 80, my dad's 77, they went out to a protest. And I gotta be honest, I had a moment, I texted my brother and I was like, mom and dad are going to like a protest like this. And my mom reached out to me and was basically like to my, to my dying breath, I will be out there on those streets. So like seeing my parents continue that legacy like that we were raised in, right? Yeah. Seeing my child bear witness to it and get affirmed in this way and be able to have these kind of conversations with him and with, you know, the older ones, like, and with friends. I mean, I think part of it is, is like so deeply moving to be in this moment with people that I care about and I love so deeply yeah. and be able to like bear witness to each other's process, but then also collectively. I just, I feel like there's been this, this tremendous shift for us as black folks, like even the interactions out on the street with each other feels qualitatively different. I'm deeply encouraged and I'm deeply hopeful that people are going to bring back all of these things we've benefited from with COVID and their own kind of internal work. And I know everybody doesn't have the space or privilege to do that work. Yeah. Um, but for those of us who are privileged enough to do that, I hope that we really kind of charge ourselves with making sure we bring pieces of this back yeah. right into the world. But I just, I'm deeply, deeply motivated and inspired and deeply grateful to the people who had the courage to create and build this movement. What I choose to believe in is that the, this momentum of this moment has the potential to really take us somewhere that we've never been. Thank you, Sean, for sharing your wisdom with us and giving us so much to think about. And thank you for the work that you are doing in this world. We deeply appreciate you. In this episode, Sean and I talked about many things one of them being the movement to defund the police. If you're interested in learning more about this work, an excellent resource is the Movement for Black Lives. For more information about the Adoptive Parents of Color Collaborative, you can find us at adoptiveparentsofcolor.org. For more information about Pact and Adoption Alliance, you can find us at pactadopt.org. Are you looking for ways to support the work of the Adoptive Parents of Color Collaborative? One really tangible way that you can help in very little effort is to like, write a review, and share this podcast. Thank you for joining us. Until next time.